Chasing Quicksilver, Chapter 1, The Goddess of the Soul, by Shannon Douglas. The word psychic comes from the word psyche, which is the name of the Greek goddess of the soul. It's the same word from which we derive the words psychology, psychotic, and psychedelic, but the word psychic is particularly loaded. Perhaps it conjures ideas of mystical perceptions or supernatural abilities that would allow someone to predict the future or to read minds, or to communicate with the dead. The modern common meaning of the word psychic is trite and a distortion. It's a long way from the classical Greek definition, which means of the nature of the soul. Psyche also translates in the classical sense as the breath of life, which refers to the life-animating force that the ancients believed flowed through us as we inhaled and exhaled. There are many expressions in different languages for this divine breath or life-animating force. In Latin, for example, it's spiritus, which gives us the word inspiration. But the modern word psyche has come to mean commonly the mind. All of these words put us into territory where definitions are problematic. What exactly is the mind? What's the soul? What's the spirit? What is the psyche? These words, mind, soul, and spirit, are used all the time, but we don't have any consensus on what exactly they mean. Is the soul tied to our personality? What is its nature? Does it even exist? Do we have an existence separate from the body? Does that mean we'll experience an afterlife? What is it? Science has no answers. It views the human being as a biological unit with a consciousness, that emerges as a byproduct of the neurochemical processes within the body, which they can't explain or define, and haven't been able to for over 400 years. Religion, for most people, only gives a superficial answer, which varies from interpreter to interpreter. It doesn't help that people have been asking these questions for thousands of years. The Egyptians argued about whether it resided in the heart or in the brain, and wrote about it in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. The Tibetans also had a Book of the Dead that explained the various layers that the soul passes through on its journey, but these accounts are rooted in different times and within different cultures and certainly don't come to mind as sources for soul-searching paths for most people. Heroic approaches to the soul are recounted in myths and metaphors as perilous quests through dark forests or mazes filled with fears. One of the universal descriptions of the quest to understand it is the labyrinth, a dark maze which is filled with murderous monsters and twists and turns at the heart of which, legend purports, is the treasure of immortality, the golden fleece or the elixir of life. Seeking an understanding of the soul, then, is not generally taken lightly. Who would enter this enchanted forest or magical maze on a whim? Who would undertake the contemplation of the bardo or explore the realm of the dead in order to contemplate it? Generally, we only ever seriously ask about the nature of the soul, the mind, and the psyche when we've had a crisis in life or experienced an encounter with our own mortality. We begin asking questions when, as Joseph Campbell describes, we hear the call to adventure in our own hero's journey. Often this comes when we're transitioning one of life's major stages like puberty, marriage, or having children. It also often comes when we're grieving when we're confronting serious illness 
or when we ourselves are faced with either the sudden shock of our potential demise or with some kind of spiritual crisis that shifts the ground of meaning beneath us. In many cases, we don't enter a treacherous maze willingly. We find ourselves suddenly lost in it with no map. A crisis of meaning can happen during major life decisions or as a consequence of external events that throw us into the darkness of the unknown, like the current crisis that we're all facing globally. It can also happen in brief moments of wonder, like looking up at the magnificence of a dark, clear night sky and seeing, as a great Canadian poet once said, the constellations reveal themselves one star at a time. In these moments, if they're profound enough, we naturally begin to ask the big questions. Who am I? Why is this happening? Why did this happen to me or to us? What hand hung those stars upon the heavens? These moments are like doorways that open in our lives into the psychic world, into the mysteries, into the world of the soul. And for most of us, this is a deeply unfamiliar place. People ask these questions with different frequency and intensity. For some people, the answers available in Sunday school are enough to see them through life if they never experience hardship. For others, not satisfied with childish explanations, or to whom the soul has called out in some fashion, or who have been tested by life, this quest is more immediate. It's ongoing. It's vital. I was one of those children who we occasionally hear about who fell through the spring ice. I was found an unknown length of time later without the breath of life in me. I was only four years old at the time, and I believe that this event had a profound effect on my temperament and personality. I always felt as if I saw the world just a little differently than the people around me because of it, with a bit more wonder, a bit more awe, and a bit more poetry. I once heard a mystic, when talking about our final transition from this life, say that our souls can't leave the body in death until it fully enters it first. I came to think of the soul after hearing this as being one-directional. It comes into our bodies from one direction when we're born and follows a trajectory through our body as it exits at the end of our life. This idea made sense to me in light of my experiences and those of others I've read about. After a near-death experience, people seem to report being more pure of themselves, with less concerns about the issues of this world than they had before. There are many triggers that draw people's souls closer to them in their lives, deeper into their bodies. People enter the maze and undertake a soul's journey for different reasons and at different times. For me, it has been a lifetime punctuated by more than one inflection point like falling through the ice, which shaped, directed, and deepened my search for answers and understanding. This spiritual curiosity is part of my nature. For others, this quest is not part of their experience until something significant happens. Whatever your nature, if you're reading this and you have questions, this is my attempt at illuminating the maze and sharing a map to the territory of the soul with you. Many people have approached these ideas from monks to mystics to modern gurus. Writing an account like this is like a reboot of a movie franchise. There are different actors and maybe a twist on the script, or a new plot device or conflict, but the arc of the story is the same. In this case, I might suggest that these ideas have been rebooted throughout all of human history by countless people. 
The accounts that survive do so because of the charisma of their creators, the eloquence of their writing and teaching, or because the people of the period of history in which they lived collectively cried out for meaning. Many others who attempted to account for their experience and understanding of our souls were persecuted as heretics, blasphemers, and found themselves cast as the villains of the epics and not as the leading man or woman. Moving forward, I'll use a script with words and phrases which are problematic to those who might label me a heretic, like soul and psychic field and even spirit guide. I expect that because of the negative association that some people have with some of these words, and because of preconceived notions, that there's a risk of losing certain audience members and readers in doing this. However, it's necessary for clarity and precision. The alternative is to coin new terms or to borrow terms as used by others in the recent past that have their own nuance and their own problems. I'd like to reclaim some of the ancient and original meanings related to words like psyche so that we can establish common reference points to ideas and build upon them to create a description that has cohesion and integrity. For example, I'll use the term psychic field to mean a shared experience of intangible ideas, feelings, and beliefs that occurs between two or more people. This is different from the word culture, which is a set of behaviors, customs, and rituals practiced by a group of people that point to the existence of shared values. As you read further into a work like this, and as you explore the ideas, you enter into the psychic field that I've established. If you go to a movie with a few hundred other people and you share an experience of the emotional and sensory environment that is a movie, you're experiencing an engagement within a psychic field. There is a well-documented neurological process that scientifically describes and labels this phenomena as the engagement of the mirror neuron system. So this is backed by science. Even though I'll back up concepts I'll use with science and scientific language, choosing to use the word psychic is intentional because it immediately should generate strong internal responses for readers. Words like this trigger preconceptions about what things mean, and it's important that we establish that curiosity criticism, and skepticism should be part of your toolbox moving forward. I expect that idea by idea and stage by stage, readers may have strong, immediate responses to some of the words I choose. Those responses may include discomfort, fear, contempt, and even anger. It's important to be aware that these initial responses can lead to outright rejection of the ideas at hand because of preconceived but never questioned beliefs that we hold. My hope is that readers will come to understand that responses like discomfort, fear, contempt, and even anger are unconscious psychic defense mechanisms, which may or may not be valid responses to ideas. These defense mechanisms are currents in the psyche, which at a deep, near-instinctual level help us to protect our psychic integrity from perceived harm. In many ways, however, these responses are like the primitive mechanisms that trigger tantrums in children or cause our limbs to twitch when the doctor checks our reflexes. Primitive psychic reflexes are not conducive to learning new things. We also have psychic mechanisms which make or accept generalizations about the world to help us navigate the complexity of life more easily. We have millions of bits of information coming into our sensory systems every second, and our brains use filters to make sure we can manage the sensory environment by helping us to focus our attention on what
what's important to us in the moment and helping us to ignore the rest of the information that's not relevant to us. These mechanisms also help us establish shortcuts to navigate the world more easily. These mental shortcuts are called heuristics. For example, here are a couple of possible heuristic, i.e. shortcut responses to encountering the word psychic in very slow motion. Hearing the word internally triggers an assumed definition. Psychic means supernatural. It means working with spirits, seeing ghosts. It's predicting the future. Can you read my mind? Working with the supernaturals against my religion, superstitious, stupid, blasphemous, irrational, evil. This is wrong, bad. I reject the idea. I reject the person. I reject the book. Now, what most people's response is at normal speed is that they hear or read the word psychic and they immediately dismiss it and disengage. Heuristic responses can save us from all kinds of problems. A fear response and a recoil reaction to spiders or snakes, for example, is a type of primitive heuristic mechanism. When we encounter a spider or snake, suddenly we need an immediate response to a potential threat, and we might not have time to decide if that variety of animal is a threat to us. We just need to respond now. Better a false positive and a defensive reaction to a spider or snake that's not a threat than not to react appropriately and to be bitten by something poisonous. But ideas aren't spiders or snakes. Nevertheless, we can have very similar responses to ideas as we do to physical threats. Ideas can trigger automatic, instinct-level responses even in the most rational people because of these mental shortcuts. Good examples in the public sphere in our age are found in the public discourse between the ideological left and the ideological right in the United States particularly. The heuristic is, if you don't agree with my ideology, then you're a bad person. Ideological heuristics now permeate the psychic fields down to the level of race and circumstance where, sadly, many of us are making snap judgments about the character of our fellow citizens based on economic class, country of origin, and religion. Hispanic people crossing the border, for example, are automatically labeled as criminals within some psychic fields, and we now, once again, are putting people into cages because of the heuristics we use to label them. Heuristics can be incredibly dangerous. Consider what happens if we take shortcuts in the morning. Maybe we skip the shower, rush out the door without breakfast, and don't take the time to plan our day. Think about then if we're always taking shortcuts and cutting corners day after day. Imagine cutting significant corners in your life for a week. Imagine skipping the toothbrushing for a month. Eventually, we reach a point where all of the corners that we cut, all the things we skipped, pile up and pile up, and we end up with an unmanageable, diseased, stressful, and toxic life. And it's very hard for us to acknowledge that the source of our problems, when we abuse shortcuts, is us. When we use and stack multiple mental shortcuts to get an understanding of the world and of ourselves without ever examining them, we can wind up in trouble. Often we take these heuristics from others. In many cases, we take them from school, from church, from the media, and from our parents without ever questioning them. Then, if we're confronted with something that doesn't fit within the mental shortcut model, we can end up with extra psychic stress and a knee-jerk, instinct-level primitive response. And we do this in many cases because we've never unpacked the beliefs that others have handed us, and we've never ourselves decided if that heuristic was a valid one. 
we accept mental shortcuts without ever unpacking the belief for ourselves. Encountering something that challenges those beliefs can result in a very uncomfortable psychic response that we call cognitive dissonance. Not only can we feel uncomfortable when something destabilizes one of those unquestioned beliefs, but our psychic defense strategy can very often include challenging or dismissing the source who floated the idea that conflicted with what we believed in the first place. Our responses to cognitive dissonance can appear from the outside like the functional equivalent of putting our hands over our ears when we hear something that doesn't fit our unquestioned model of the world and singing, la la la, I can't hear you. Our responses can be much worse though and weaker minds will often react by rejecting, attacking, or abusing people who don't agree with them. Every belief that we hold that we have never questioned is a liability upon our soul. Every belief that we hold that we've never questioned is a liability upon our soul. The beliefs that others have given us that we have accepted without question are increments of freedom that we've surrendered to those others by accepting them at face value. True freedom comes from psychic autonomy and from knowing that we have sovereignty of our own minds and our own beliefs. Being able to examine and evaluate our beliefs and our judgments is a required step towards true freedom and towards individual sovereignty. Otherwise, we're sheep being led in this age by very questionable shepherds. A person who can set aside their fear of spiders and snakes, for example, who can examine their responses and realize that not all of them will kill you, can begin to learn about antivenoms and about medicines and about ecosystems. They can learn how to protect others from being bitten in the first place. If we never got past our initial fears, if no one ever slowed down enough to ask questions about snakes and spiders, if human beings never got past their fight-or-flight responses to those spiders and snakes, we wouldn't have Botox, and we'd have no treatment for poisonous bites. All mental shortcuts, like the ones that trigger immediate discomfort, fear, contempt, and anger, are instinctual and emotional. They're never rational. The emotions and the judgments come first. The rationalized explanation follows. When we encounter a word, an idea, or a concept that makes us uncomfortable, we're having an emotional response. There's another kind of response to ideas that we can potentially have if we encounter things that are new to us. It's the ego response that simply shuts down incoming information because of another heuristic. Sometimes we connect our own lack of knowledge or experience with a belief that we have that this lack of knowing somehow means that we suffer from failure, stupidity, or a flaw in our own character. For example, my father-in-law and I had a long good-natured dispute about barbecue and cooking. I spent 15 years working in restaurants and kitchens as a younger person, and when I discovered charcoal barbecue, partly thanks to him, I, I fell in love with it. I watched hours of pitmaster techniques on YouTube. I studied butchery and animal breakdowns. I read books on the science of cooking, about the convection currents that established themselves inside kettle grills, about the optimal temperatures to cook at and to arrive at for different cuts of meat. I read about the kinds of seasoning required to rub the perfect roast or chicken. I read about chemistry and about standing carry and the importance of salt in the cooking process. This is a love and a hobby, and I share my passion for cooking with my family 
by presenting the end product, but they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I learned it was simply pointless to try and share what I knew or to expect that my father-in-law wouldn't cook over my shoulder, teasing me in a good-natured way while he did it about what he thought I was doing wrong and poking me with loving skepticism about my techniques. All the while, though, he based his ideas about barbecue on things he learned decades before and never questioned. Underlying this, as you may have experienced with someone you know, who's set in their ways, was a stubbornness about being right. And if I'd handled it poorly, it would have resulted in hard feelings. Very often, the ideas that trigger the most intense responses in us demand the most attention and reflection. These responses require that we examine our heuristics and unquestioned beliefs and fears, and that we ask ourselves where they came from. And then it requires that we make an honest evaluation of the idea that has so offended us. We have to be willing to ask ourselves if our ideas are based on strong foundations by examining those foundations. And we also have to be able to accept that being wrong or uninformed about something doesn't make us bad or stupid or less than. People who make their lives professing their rationalism can be just as guilty of using heuristics and mental shortcuts as regular people when it comes to the ideas about the soul that I'll be unpacking and exploring as we move forward together. The rational mind, which is trained to be suspicious and to take apart or tear down ideas that don't have a material basis, is especially wary of ideas that are in any way connected with or have an aura of the supernatural. Certainly, the material sciences have no vocabulary for the numinous and the transcendent. For you, I'll back up my choice to use strange language with documented, measured, and peer-reviewed results and conclusions in modern neuroscience research. A psychic field, as I've said, is another term for a well-documented neurological function that all humans have in common called mirror neurons, which form the basis of our capacity for empathy and group identity. FMRI studies have demonstrated that it's absolutely possible and natural for human beings to neurochemically entrain with each other. This phenomenon ranges from feeling deep connectedness together with an intimate partner all the way up to our ability to participate in psychic fields at competitive professional sports events where hometown fans ride a collective emotional roller coaster as they cheer for or grieve for their team. For the religious mind who's not comforted by the scientific explanation of my use of the term psychic field, perhaps you've also had experiences of, of entrainment or resonance with the field of consciousness within your religious observance and worship. A collection of people who share common beliefs and practices participate within a psychic field that is built on rules and rituals and rites. The fear that you may have felt encountering the word psychic could have come from your own heuristic understanding of the word as being connected to other scary words like occult and pagan, and because it conjured images of gypsies with bauble rings and headscarves. Regardless of your initial reaction, I invite you to be curious enough to understand that to some degree my choice of words is cheeky and playful. I don't have any intention of predicting the future or reading minds or telling you what the dead are saying about you. If you notice that you encounter ideas that make you uncomfortable or that you disagree with, I invite you to be curious about why. It's okay to accept discomfort moving forward and to hold the things that make you uncomfortable in your mind without rejecting them outright 
just like it's okay to consider different types of spiders and snakes without jumping on a chair. You don't have to take the spider or snake home with you. It's just helpful to be able to find a place within yourself to allow the experience without automatic panic, fear, or rejection. This is a practice our society could use more of, because in this volatile age of ideologies, we're too often trained to not only reject the idea based on our mental shortcuts, we're often trained to reject the person sharing them. This is the case in the world of politics in the age of populism. The common shortcut is to simply reject everything heard because a Republican said it, or because a Democrat said it. And this leads to the establishment of very dangerous psychic fields, primitive ones that once existed in cultures of tribal warlords, where the fundamental principles that govern the field are about might and power dictating what's right. This field is about in-groups and out-groups, and us versus them. It's a set of heuristics not based on morality, justice, human decency, rationalism, or truth in any form. It's a heuristic based on power and violence. In order to avoid falling again to this primitive way of being in society, we have to, as individuals, be willing to ask the questions. How do I know this is true? When someone says universal health care or a single-payer system is a communist idea or a radical leftist socialist fantasy, how do we know that statement's true? Do we accept the heuristic from Fox News or the president's tweets, or do we actually do some work and unpack what those statements mean? What is universal health care, for example? Has it ever been tried before? Is it really a radical communist idea brought to you by the extreme left? What is socialism? What's democratic socialism? Who is making the claims and accusations, and whose interests do those claims and accusations serve? Who paid for the studies that the news anchor or the talking heads quote during primetime about the benefits of clean coal? What are the political biases of the pundits and news editors and the owners of the media who are filtering information and feeding your psychic fields? If we fail to question what we're told by people in power around us, parents, church leaders, and politicians, we're no better than pawns. We've sold our souls to others for beads and baubles and blankets. We may come to the conclusion after doing some work to ascertain it that what we're being told is the truth or reasonably close to it, but we may also discover that many of our beliefs are based on illusions. If we accept any information about the state of our world without questioning it, we're being played as fools and we're in danger of being manipulated. We must be ruthless in our analysis of the information we accept as true. Instead of using heuristics, we can instead use an algorithm an algorithm is a sequence of steps used to analyze information and to reach an outcome or conclusion that protects our psychic sovereignty instead of our egos. How do I know this is true? According to who is this true? What is their agenda for attempting to get others to believe this? What are they selling us? What are they telling us? Whose interests do they serve? Who are they anyway? So I begin with a challenge. Do not believe what you're reading here without questioning it. Be cautious that your instinct may be to jump or to recoil from ideas that I'll share with you. Even if those ideas are scary like snakes or spiders, be dispassionate enough to examine them from a safe distance in order to understand why you had a reaction to that idea. Unpack what your beliefs are and decide whether or not you can continue to hold them in your own psychic field as you come upon new ideas 
that may have potential value for you. Seek your own psychic sovereignty. You're in charge of your mind and your soul. Your psychic sovereignty cannot be established without having an open but critical mind. Terms like psyche, mind, consciousness, soul, ego, and self are notoriously difficult to communicate accurately about, but they are terms most closely tied with the biggest and most profound questions that human beings have ever asked. They're especially vulnerable to superficial understandings, misuse, and to having mental shortcuts applied to them because there are questions for which we still have no definitive answers. It would stand to reason that it should be important to define the terms clearly up front, but for anyone who's made any modest attempt at contemplating these big questions themselves, defining these terms can be like drawing in water with a stick. One heuristic we might acknowledge at the start is the one that warns us about entering the maze or the dark forest in the first place. In some schools, this is called the fool's journey. Nevertheless, this book is about all of these things, and so we begin. <laughs>